Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis Fourteenth, reminding you to please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to it right now. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on Twitter and Instagram. We have merch available at poppantheonpod.com, our niche legend dad hat, the look for summer, you gotta get that. And we're also on Patreon at patreon.com slash poppantheon, where we offer at least three bonus episodes of the podcast per month, plus access to our iconic Discord server. So get on that too. All right. So last two pieces of housekeeping is gorgeous, gorgeous. My queer pop party is happening on both coasts in the coming weeks. We are in LA on August 25th at Resident, and we are in New York for our second New York party, yay, on September 16th at the Sultan Room in Bushwick. I'd love to see you guys there. This is going to be so much fun. I can't wait for these parties. Links to buy tickets for both of those parties will be in the show notes of this episode. So yeah, I hope to see some of you guys there. All right, so this is a B-side episode, a topic that has come up recently on the show a lot because of the recent revival of pop punk is pop punk. So I wanted to do an episode where we're digging into the history of pop punk, how it came together, how it originated with punk in the 70s, how it morphed into something that became adjacent to pop music in the 90s into the early 2000s, the idea of how something as iconoclastic as punk music and something as commercially driven as pop music could even come together. It seems like a bit of a opposing terms situation, but obviously it's produced a lot of really memorable music from my childhood, from Blink-182 to Avril Lavigne, some 41, that whole wave. And then, of course, it's gone through an interesting recent revival, obviously, in the late 2000s, where a lot of rappers picked up the mantle, like little Uzi Vert, little Peep. And then, of course, with like Machine Gun Kelly and Olivia Rodrigo in recent years, it's crossed over once again into mainstream pop sounds. So I invited Ryan Pierce, who's a writer for Alternative Press Magazine and for other publications about pop punk to come on, talk about the history of the genre, why he thinks it's coming back now, how the different waves have reflected the moment that they've occurred in, et cetera, et cetera. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Ryan. Okay, so I am here with writer for Alternative Press and New Noise Magazine, Ryan Pierce. Ryan, welcome to the show. So excited to talk pop punk. Thank you for having me. It really is an honor. It's an honor to have you here. I want to ask you before we get into this, like, how did this become an area of interest for you? I was curious about that. You know, I think the first pop punk song I really fell in love with, I probably was later than a lot of people, was What's My Age Again mm-hmm. by Blink-182. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's about the time she walked away from me. I heard it on Now 3. Sure. Now 3. It's the third track on Now 3. Mm-hmm. And since then, I've been hooked, been a big fan of pop punk music. I always wanted to really get into, you know, helping artists get more publicity and writing's something I've always done. And that's how I got into writing uh, about four or five years ago on this part of media. What was it about What's My Age Again that spoke to you, do you think? Like, what was it about that song that you think, like, ignited some sort of interest for you? Let's see, I was probably about 11, 12 years mm-hmm. old, and maybe it was the guitar bit in the beginning, <laughs> the little intro that Tom plays. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it was the pace, the lyrics. Something about it clicked, mm-hmm. and I was hooked. They were my first, you know, love, first favorite, but 
had a lot of other bands growing up that I enjoyed and just stuck with me. Yeah, I mean, Blink-182 was huge for me as well. I remember, I mean, I'm probably around the, your age, so I think that for our generation, sure. it was just like a very important band that I think like kind of speaks to a lot of what we're going to talk about today, which is the way that this genre sort of fuses ideas of sort of like punk rock, which is like an iconoclastic outside of the mainstream idea with sort of like the most sort of centrist ideas in pop music, kind of like seeming like countervailing ideas that have come together into this one musical format. You're so spot on. And that to me is, is one of my big, big points about why people like this music. It provides a space for people that like pop sound, but the punk ethos, mm. like you're saying, it brings two kind of different forms together and I, it caught on and it still is popular. So in thinking about like just the origins of pop punk, maybe it would be instructive just to talk briefly about sure. what punk was. I mean, I know we're not going to like give a full blown biblical history of punk music right now, but if you could just kind of like lay out maybe briefly for us, like what punk is and what we need to understand about punk in order to understand pop punk, what would you say? Yeah, I think it's important to understand punk. Some of the, you know, the main bands back then, you know, I think the Sex Pistols, the Clash, that era of music, the Ramones, it was this fast paced a little bit coarser, oftentimes more political music. I mean, the Sex Pistols are known for talking about the crown mm -hmm. quite frequently <laughs> in the UK. It became very popular as this kind of counter to, okay, you got the Beatles, you got the psychedelic music. There wasn't anything for somebody that wasn't into it, but they still liked guitars. Punk came around and that kind of was it. Disco obviously was incredibly popular back then too, but then you know, this band called the Sex Pistols were only big for a couple of years and groups like them really started to become a big thing. And like, what do you feel like is the ethos of punk music? Like if you had to sort of just like broadly sum that up for people, like what is kind of like the culture of punk that needs to be understood just in broad strokes? I think the culture of punk lived through pop punk, then to emo, then to underground music. It's all the same. We're in a basement. We're creating music for 50 to 100 people mm. at one time. Mm. It's aggressive. You're moving. You're getting into it. It's basic. It's, you know, four chords. Mm -hmm. We're not thinking about the musicianship. We're just here to let out some energy. And I think that really carried the day from the 70s to 80s, 90s into where we're at now. No matter what this music has sounded like, that's been at the spirit of it. Mm. And also kind of like a middle finger to authority, right? I mean, isn't that kind of like a of pretty course. important part of this? I mean, if we're laying out kind of like how these two sort of like seemingly contradictory ideas of punk and pop are coming together, I feel like an important element of sort of the punk ethos, both in terms of like the way it was challenging kind of rock historical authority or like the ideas of like what rock music could and should be. And then also kind of challenging like societal governmental authority. I mean, this music was like a middle finger, essentially. And that's what it really was. The 70s, 80s and 90s. And you see some of the late like punk transition to pop punk. It loses it a little bit. Then the lyrics become maybe more relatable about relationships, mm. about, you know, high school, mm. stuff like that. Mm. Now as much about politics but those early days of punk and then maybe early days of, some of the, the big pop punk bands a lot of politics a lot of like you said middle finger to authority mm. let's do things our way kind of thing yeah it's very interesting to think about that as an origin for a genre that has become like such radio fodder and that is you know aimed sure. at the center of you know mainstream culture i think that's part of what makes pop punk maybe like a particularly fascinating subset of popular music for me anyway is sort of the idea that like everything that punk stood for is kind of like the opposite of what pop music stands for and yet that kind of like coming together of these two disparate ideas like makes for something kind of 
fascinating to listen to or thrilling to listen to. It is that juxtaposition. I think that's really what made it so popular. We're seeing this this mini revival yeah. these days, yeah. and I think there's a big reason why. I mean, we saw it was popular in the early 2000s. What was happening? Mm. We were going to war. There was 9-11. There mm. was anger in our country. Mm. And maybe that wasn't the key contributor, but we saw it in you know, punk music. Yeah. Pop punk music yeah. really became popular. Now we've got COVID. Now we've got a little more political anxiety. Mm. We've seen a bit of a revival from it. I think punk is one of those brands, one of those genres of music that finds a living when there is that emotion in the general public. Mm. And we've seen it now twice over the past 20 years. Mm. It also kind of funnels, I feel like, a particular sort of teen agita. Like, I think that that feels like a really important element of punk and thus of pop punk is sort of like this container or vessel for the force of teen agita, anger, emotion, extremity feels also really important to both punk as we know it in its pure form and then also to like how that gets funneled into whatever popular form it comes into during the pop punk sort of movements of the last 20, 25 years. Absolutely. It's incredibly interesting that you mentioned that. I know we'll probably get to it, but that's one reason why a lot of people think that we've seen this mini revival with the Machine Gun Kelly's, mm -hmm. the Willows, mm -hmm. the pop punk comeback mm -hmm. over the past couple of years, because when we were locked up in pandemic, the thought process is, well, we kind of got in touch mm -hmm. with our inner teenager mm -hmm. and we had time to ourselves. That came out. Mm -hmm. Musicians created this music. Mm -hmm. Listeners got into it. Mm -hmm. How do you see punk music becoming pop punk? Like, how do you see that sort of transition happening? Like, when does that happen? How does that happen? Through whom does that happen? Are there particular songs and acts we can point to that feel like transitional moments in that sort of thing? Like, how do you view all of that? Sure. So I think there are always phases and moments of the poppiness in the punk music. Now, I think you, some people who, who are into hardcore punk would say the Ramones, they would say maybe the Sex Pistols were a little bit right, poppy. Right, of course. But the general consensus says, you know, the pop punk that we think of when we think of pop punk really came along in the mid to late 90s. But there was moments of it when punk was big in the 70s. Mm -hmm. The Ramones are credited with having potentially the first pop punk song mm -hmm. with uh, Bop. Mm -hmm. It was It was a huge song. They had their punk bass to it, but they were influenced by boy bands in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And we saw other punk bands have moments of poppiness. There's the very popular Milo Goes to College album in the 1980s, 1982 mm. from The Descendants. Mm. It sounds punkish now, right. but I'm sure back then you listen to it and you're like, oh, this has more pop elements to it. And there's different moments like that throughout the 80s. Early 90s was kind of run by the grunge scene. Mm. And then in the mid 90s, we start to see pop punk become a little bit more mainstream. Green Day does Dookie mm. and it showed, okay, we can add elements of pop, the production. We don't have to be screaming the smoothness mm. of it. We can, our songs can be a little bit longer. Mm. There could be hooks. Mm. Don't keep saying 
saw a few bands transition, uh, no doubt, mm-hmm. when Stefani's band, mm-hmm. they stopped doing as much funk in ska, they became more poppy. Mm-hmm. Offspring, mm-hmm. let go of grunge, become more of a pop punk. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the big one in 1999, Enemy of the State by Blink-182, right. right. was kind of the one that busted the door open. So, like, in thinking about how this transition occurred, I mean, you were sort of getting at this. What are these bands in this transitional phase? Let's, like, set aside the mid to late 90s when it sort of like came into full bloom but in terms of like the beginning of this transition what are they doing i mean you were starting to say this they were maybe singing differently they weren't screaming as much perhaps they were focusing more squarely on melodic choruses or whatever it was like what were the elements of punk that they were taking with them and then what specifically were elements of pop that you feel that they were sort of instinctually or purposefully bringing into the mix here like how did these come together so you listen to say dookie from green day 19 94, yeah. Blink-182, Enemy of the State. You compare that to the early 90s, uh, late 80s for Green Day, what they were creating. The pace was there. Mm-hmm. It still sounds like the same pace. Mm-hmm. You got the same ethos, the aggression, mm-hmm. but there's undoubtedly a cleaner melody, cleaner guitar, and it, it could be a better factor of just improved technology at that, yeah. that time. Cleaner guitars, there's hooks. You have this 10-second bit in every song that's trying to get you in, trying to get on the radio, trying to get listens. And in in terms of the lyrics, they're just a little, not cleaner in terms of you know, language, but just a, a little bit more relatable, I think, to the general public, a little less political, probably, a little more serious. Blink is known for their, their joke songs yeah, sure. in the 90s, but they had more of those in the beginning. Right. I think when they tried to make something maybe a, a little more radio-friendly, they became a bit more serious. Then bands like No Effects, their songs became longer, they became more polished. MXPX was kind of the same mm-hmm. thing. tailored back the sky a little bit. Mm. No doubt tailored back kind of the funk sound they had going on. Everything was its own little genre, but it was tweaked to be more radio friendly for those big late 90s pop punk bands. And like thematically, what are these songs? I mean, you were talking about the lyrics, like, you know, we were talking about how punk acts had a lot of like countercultural themes going on. There was a lot of like railing against authority, railing against the crown, railing against, you know, societal constructs and norms. What are sort of the, like in, in thinking about, let's say like take a Dookie for instance, or even MXPX or sure. like, what are those bands dealing with thematically that's different perhaps? MXPX, a lot of their music was about parties, right. having fun. Right. Green Day right. kind of had that same thing. Mm-hmm. Blink-182, it became more about relationships. Relationships, think what's my age again, yeah. all the small things, mm-hmm. damn it to an extent. They kind of shifted to an extent from the political to the, okay, what, what's a high school kid going to be thinking about? What's the, what's the young person thinking mm. about? It may not be as much politics as their, you know, 20 years ago, punk brethren were, were singing about like the sex pistols right. in the class. Right. I think thematically that was one big change that made it 
more digestible for the general public. And I also think like the ethos of pop culture and of teen culture was so different in the 90s than it was in the 70s, 80s. Too. Sure. You know, I mean, I think that was a time of sort of like, I guess maybe a certain amount of less political engagement, perhaps like en masse in many ways. Obviously, this is a broad generalization, but I'm just going to speak in those terms right now. But sure. it was a moment of a lot of cultural excess their concerns were more kind of individualistic as opposed to sort of like broader cultural social in that particular era i mean at least that was my experience as a child of the 90s i think undoubtedly yeah. i think that's kind of where we were in the 90s and i think that helped lead to uh the late 90s pop punk boom yeah. and when it gets into the 2000s it alters a little bit it changes yeah. i don't think we really see the politics of maybe what was happening you know overseas there's some exceptions right. but really in back to music maybe to 2004 2005 right. but there was like this happy 1998 i like what you say the excess culture yeah. to maybe 2003 yeah. that pop punk really thrived in there it's also fascinating to just think about the corporatizing of the human spirit because it's like you know it's it is this like funny idea of sort of like this brand of music that kind of feels like a raw expression of human emotion then getting kind of like co-opted because we still want to feel that expression but then sort of we also want to feel it in a less challenging way or in a way that feels more broadly appealing you know this happens with so many subgenres i think a similar thing really sure. was happening with rap simultaneously to this where you're sort of like taking mm -hmm. this sort of raw left field sort of like underground vibes of rap in the 80s into the early 90s and then by the time you're getting to the mid 90s and late 2000s you're dealing with like a lot of the same like spirit or again middle finger energy that like a lot of rap music has to it but sort of giving it this glossier sheen giving it this mass appeal giving it hooks like this is a thing that's i think so many subgenres that get funneled through the mainstream pop machine like just kind of come out in this way where it's like we want to still capture that like spirit like the energy of the music like transcends some of these confines of each of the subgenres and yet at the same time it does represent kind of like this corporatization or smoothing over of like the values that they originally proposed to sort of give us and you're, and you're spot on a lot of people compare the rise in punk with rap and, and hip-hop has had much more staying power at least in the mainstream right. than pop punk and punk did but you're right that there's comparisons i think a lot of people make those comparisons when they they talk about the trajectory of both of those but i think that's kind of what when you know record labels when producers they saw dookie do well they're like okay we can take this kind of sharper version of music mm. and then make it good mm. and people will really buy into it. And Green Day is such an incredible talent. Yes. I think that's why Blink-182's Enemy of the State really led to the mass amount of music from pop punk we saw the following years because Green Day had tons of talent. Right. The Offering had tons of talent. Right. Blink-182, Mark and Tom weren't known for being the best singers, musicians. Yet they made an album that sold 15 million copies mm. across the world. Mm. And I think labels saw that and like, oh, okay, if those two, along with Travis, who's obviously very talented, can do this, we can do this with a lot of people. And I think that led to a kind of a big boom right after that. So you were talking about Anima of the State as a huge moment that was sort of like the big bang in many ways of like how we think about pop punk today. I remember this era. I remember in this time period, I was pretending to be a skateboarder. I had all of these friends that were like skateboarders and I just like wanted to be cool and I just like owned a skateboard even though like I didn't use it and I like wore Jenkos and whatever and like the culture of the crew was like we had to listen to punk and ska even though like that wasn't really like what I actually yeah. like cared that much about but we again it was like no FX MX all the stuff you were naming before like that was like if you didn't listen to that like you really couldn't be in the group like that, that was how it felt and I remember Blink in their pre-enema of the state 
format was part of that kind of vibe. And then sure. I remember Enema of the State being incredibly divisive because I think it was this thing, at least in my friend group, where it was like they sold out, which was obviously like a huge part of just general pop culture in that time period, which I think is a little bit less of a thing than it used to be now. But in those days, it was like there was this big line between like selling out. Like that was like a huge deal, especially looking at musicians when we were teenagers. So like how does Blink fortify, alter their specific approach from what they were doing prior to Enema of the State to Enema of the State? And how does maybe that sort of tweak give us insight into like how pop punk calcified in the late 90s? I was trying to think back to to that album. And I, and I wonder if, if it was Blink going into it, the three creators, Mark, Tom, and Travis, thinking, okay, we got to have this different radio sound. Or if it was their incredible producer, Jerry Finn, mm. he ended up dying in 2008 mm. when he was in a plane crash with Travis, the infamous helicopter crash. Right. But he produced that album, then produced a handful in the next four or five years. Mm. So I think part of it was Jerry Finn's production style mm. was just so crisp. Mm. The, the bells and whistles he had of the album was great. Mm -hmm. But I think the songwriting was more concise mm -hmm. in that album from those three mm -hmm. than Dude Ranch, which was still incredibly popular. Yeah, right. You could tell like all the small it felt like it was ready for radio. What's my age again? Felt like it was ready for radio. There are bands and the offspring. I mentioned them with Americana. Mm -hmm. They completely flipped their style. They knew. I think they had an idea that this was going to be something that was big, mm -hmm. and they helped create it. Bands like that were kind of altering that style, making it crisper, having mm. the, the power chords, the, the uh, production, the chunkiness, the hooks. Mm. And that's kind of what formed into the next few years. It's interesting to think about Enema of the State because, you know, I you know I was thinking this just look, listening back to that, listening back to like Good Charlotte, Sum 41, whatever, yeah. like the fallout from Enema of the State. I was thinking the songs have some of the most like dynamic, clean pop hooks of any songs. I mean, like, like I was thinking about the anthem by Good Charlotte and I was just like, sure. this is as good of a hook as like Max Martin was cooking up at this particular moment. Like the king of the perfect pop hook. But the thing that I think makes Enema of the State instructive and perhaps like a good launching off point to talk about sort of like what comes after that is that there was also this feeling of kind of like they would make it like drip in irony at the same time. It was almost like they were singing pop music or identifying elements of pop music, including having these undeniable hooks, which was obviously the primary driving force between this music, caused this music to take over the radio and be so popular. I mean, that's pop music has to have a great hook, right? Like that's the, that's a non-negotiable. So these songs really have that going on and these songs explode into these big hooks. I mean, you think about what's my age again. I mean, that hook is just absolutely undeniable. Sure. You could recontextualize that hook into a Backstreet Boys song and it could be as catchy you know so it's got that thing but they would sing it in this kind of way that was very like almost like they were taking the piss out of it as pop music at the same time which I think allowed for people to feel that it was different than listening to the Backstreet Boys you know what I mean like it was different than listening to a pop act like they imbued it with a certain irony and like a wink and a nod that I think like helped kind of balance out the sugar rush of the whole thing and it's spot on I think that's when people realize like we got the pop sound that we like but this 
has guitar right, right. this has signifiers of credibility we, exactly it's got more of a rock feel mm-hmm. there's a, a large chunk of people that wanted the crispness the production of pop with the guitars the pace of punk and there's a crowd just waiting for something that fit them and then late 90s comes along and they get their music yeah and it's also interesting i mean you were talking about this arising sort of like on the backdrop of perhaps like you know brewing social and cultural change I mean, sure obviously enema of the state is in 1999 but a lot of this pop punk movement happens after 9-11 during the iraq war or whatever but i also think it's happening on the backdrop of what's happening in pop which is that pop more broadly is in one of its most bubblegum sugary teen oriented frivolous eras i mean this is the teen pop boom this is trl this is Britney, Christina, Backstreet, NSYNC. So I think a lot of this stuff can also be viewed as counter-programming that's also sneakily just as poppy, but like is serving for teens at this time as kind of like a way to like pop music and not feel badly about it. I mean, I think that was kind of like a big element that I remember having been 13, 14 during this moment. Well, you mentioned TRL. So it it felt like radio still wasn't on board with a lot of pop punk. There was a couple songs that made it big, but TRL was. Like TRL was one of the biggest pushers of pop punk during that time. Good Charlotte. Yellow card, yeah. relying, I mean, you just throw the names out yeah. there. And I think you're right. They wanted to have that counterbalance to some of the, the bubblegum pop that we were seeing during that time period. And that's why really between 2000 and 2003 is when pop punk just had this massive explosion. Uh, they had a lot of what Blink and Green Day and MXPX did in the 90s, but it was even more produced. They had little intricacies that you might hear in a pop song. I mean, one I wrote down was Avril Lavigne's Complicated, where oh, she yeah. has... I think they're saying like the life's like this, like right in the beginning, yeah. in the background, and you're like, oh, that's something that you wouldn't hear in a punk song. Right. That's a pop element. Totally. Life's like this. Uh-huh. Good Charlotte, I mean, lifestyle, the rich, the famous. Yeah. I mean, that's perfect pop. Totally. There's other bands like that that really just upped the bubblegummy, poppy sound, but they had the lyrics that I think really resonate with fans. Then there was a culture around it, mm. and that leads into kind of the post, you know, 9-11 that I think still provided a space for these fans to find that that counterculture that they were looking for to express themselves, which the pop punk scene was usually pretty open to. Can you talk about that culture? Like, what was the culture that yeah. surrounded it? Like, what were the shows like? How did they perform? Who was into this stuff? Like, you were a kid. You were you were my age around probably when this was happening. Like, what was the audience for this and what was the culture around Fallout Boy and Sum 41 and all of the kind of fallout from Blink-182? Sure. So I think the big difference between 90s pop punk, 90s punk mm-hmm. maybe even 90s emo mm-hmm. and 90s pop emo and what we saw between 2000 about 2005 mm-hmm. was there were more girls yes it was more friendly for women to come into mm-hmm. it women teenagers right you were seeing crowds that used to be all men moshing mm-hmm. used to be all young guys moshing mm-hmm. turn into a very you know bi-gender crowd mm-hmm. we saw a little bit more diversity mostly though it was you know white men white women mm. at the time mm. but we were seeing more women so and that helped out we talked about the kind of post 9-11 people were looking for something not so commercially produced they wanted something with a little bit more of a message mm. bands like some 41 really really picked up on that fat lip one of my favorite songs from this era i have to say when fat lip came out, i also thought that was a massive moment because i think fat lip allowed like the more punkers to say okay mm. somebody is taking what we sang about and actually putting that on the national stage mm. i think maybe some 41 better than blink or good charlotte mm. or even green day mm-hmm. or a uh, simple plan they really took that the original ethos 
of punk and implemented that straight into their pop punk sound. I think that helped them. Especially right after 9-11 when they really blew up. Mm, That's so interesting. And like, I mean, I think we should obviously also talk about like the Warp Tour, right? I mean, wasn't that like such a huge part of this moment? I mean, that was like such a big kind of piece of cultural programming that was like kind of a banner event linked to all of these bands, I feel like. Oh, it was massive. Without Warp Tour, it'd be like having Major League Baseball with no minor Right. It's really hard to do. You don't have a place for these players to train. Warp Tour provided an incredible training ground for so many of these young and upcoming bands. Now, it has its issues, not paying enough Mm, or whatever mm, it may be, mm. but it gave these bands a chance to get in front of a crowd. And it had like baseball. It had this minor league system where fans could get a firsthand look at all these bands at a quick time. Mm. These bands could work together, bounce ideas off each other. Mm. And it gave them a huge advantage to help them climb the rungs with this growing crowd. Warp Tour was big in the early 2000s, and then 2005 was the big explosion right. that we can get to potentially in a little bit. Right. But there was this funneling system for this talent to grow and get better, and that was a huge part of the culture. Yeah. It's so you, There's so many things I want to ask you about. I mean, one of them is I'm so interested in kind of like your point about the diversifying or the gender diversity that kind of comes into this pop-punk movement. I mean, I remember this being a thing that women almost were more into in some ways than guys were. I mean, yeah. I remember Good Charlotte, Sum 41, Avril, obviously. Like, this was stuff that was playing to women in some ways more than men, which is way different than punk as it was before. So that's really fascinating to me. I mean, I'm, I'm curious about the racial element of this as well. I mean, this was also extremely white seeming to me. I mean, I don't know if you have a different perception of that. I mean, it was all these acts were white and this music, this was music, you know, it's so interesting now, you know, looking back on it. Cause I feel like the worlds of like punk rock rap in the style of like a little Uzi vert or a little peep and all, like all these things have kind of morphed into one soup. And like, oh. now it feels like the banner of pop punk is actually carried on most like, evidently through rap music in some ways. But back then, I remember it feeling so white. And I remember that being a huge part of like an underlying tension was that like, if you were into punk and rock, like you kind of weren't into rap and hip hop, like that, those things felt very like separated in this particular time period, which I think would be kind of a mind fuck for people now thinking about it. But that you you agree with that characterization. Oh, absolutely. You're spot on. Look, I, I think that scene was got credit for being open to anybody to come in, any idea to come in. But at the end of the day, it was mostly white young men singing on stage. It did blow up because unlike punk in the 90s, it accepted a second half of the audience. Like it was tailoring towards young girls too and women. So that helped out. But it was this juxtaposition of, hey, we're singing about all this positive, you know, accept people. But there's also this underline of, okay, it's just white men, for the most part, performing. And the crowd is, although now much more gender diverse, a very white crowd. Yeah, 100%. And then the other thing I wanted to ask you is, like, what was the attitude of, like, the rock or punk establishment, like, towards this sort of poppier version of this music? Like, was this looked down upon, maligned? Like, how was this viewed by the rock establishment? I was curious about. So I think the best way I can I can answer that is there's a really good book called Where Your Boys Tonight is the name of the book. It just came out. The book is, is phenomenal. It goes into this era of how, like, 
in the 90s, there was a sense of, like you mentioned, you know, you don't want to sell out. Right. But really in the early 2000s, I think when bands started saying, hey, we could we could really make a living off this. This could be our, our careers right. for, our, for what we do and how we support our families. I think there was a little bit less, at least from that book and from what I understand reading about both the emo and pop punk scene at this time, because there's this understanding of, you know, we can actually do this for a living – I think there is less concern about looking like you're going mainstream because you were actually making it. You were going on these cross-country tours yeah. and you were performing. Yeah. Are you enjoying this episode? Because if you are, let me tell you, if you're only listening to the Pop Pantheon main feed, you're only getting half the story. Over on our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, we're now offering at least three, yes, three bonus episodes of the show per month. We're talking about all your favorite new albums like Jesse Ware's That Feels Good, digging into all the big singles of the month on our new music speed rounds, and of course, deep diving on classic albums like Janet's The Velvet Rope, Ariana Grande's Positions, Lady Gaga's Chromatica, and so much more with all of your favorite Pop Pantheon guests. All of this, plus you'll get access to our Discord channel, input on future episodes of the show, and so much more. So what are you doing? Go over to patreon.com slash poppantheon or click the link in the show notes of this episode to sign up at the icon tier today. The sort of last part I wanted to ask you about this particular movement is, or this early 2000s sort of boom, is obviously there's like a whole other sort of like subset of popular music that sort of arises in some ways out of pop punk, but that I don't think we would refer to as pop punk, which is the way that sort of just rock and punk energy begins to just infiltrate into like more mainstream like pop stars music. Like I'm thinking about Since You've Been Gone by Kelly Clarkson. I'm thinking about sure. Demi Lovato's early music, obviously like Ashley Simpson. You make me want to Like, you wouldn't call them, like, pop punk, but there's a way in which there was sort of, like, a transforming of, like, the way pop does or synthesizing the way pop does of sort of, like, all right, now these bands have, like, served their usefulness for us, and now, like, these more mainstream stars can sort of step in and just sort of pick up the mantle and we don't need them anymore. Is that part of the reason that you think some of these bands kind of quickly fell out of fashion in the mid-2000s? Well, it, it definitely was something that happened, for sure. I mean, I, I guess my example I'm thinking of, you brought up a whole bunch of good ones. I'm thinking of, like, the early Jonas Brothers. Yes. Like, I, right, I randomly one. listened to some of the earliest. Yeah. And I'm like, that is pretty close to pop punk. Sure. It's Disney pop punk. Definitely. Disney was very good at co-opting the style in general, I have to say, in this period. That was like, they often like would repackage their exactly. stars as like rock pop punk adjacent sort of in mm -hmm. that vibe in this era going back to your question about when this fell off I, I sometimes wonder what led to kind of quick fall off in the late 2000s mm. and this hung on with i think 2006 2007 boys like girls kind of blew mm -hmm. up the, oh my god boys like girls wow i had not thought of that in so long that's crazy oh sure and they they actually just came back with new music we the kings did a song with demi lovato mm -hmm. they did hang on but there was this kind of drop off and it, i think part of it was just the the change in taste for people i think that those teenagers you know they reached their 20s and they maybe they got more into foster the people mm -hmm. or kind of a softer mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. like Gautier or somebody like mm -hmm. that a, a softer uh, version of alternative mm -hmm. music mm -hmm. that to me I've, I've always wondered what led to that quick fall off though and i'm not quite sure i can put a finger on it i think going back to your point though potentially the pop stealing a lot of those elements making it maybe less 
entertaining, less cool, yeah. possibly for lack of a better term, right. was a fact. I mean, it really did sort of filter its way up into just more like kind of straight ahead pop vessels. Like I even think about a song like Katy Perry's Hot and Cold or something like that, you know, in which sure. you're sort of dealing with like a song that could essentially in some ways be a pop punk song, but it's also kind of like a new wave electro pop song. Cause you're hot. And she's obviously like no one embodying the sort of like ethos of punk music. Like thinking about Katy Perry as any sort of transcendent of punk is honestly absurd on its face. But lest we forget, Katy Perry was on the Warped Tour. Katy Perry, when she first came out, was like positioned somewhat amongst these groups. So you can sort of see the way that like some of the energy that was like maybe reserved for these bands in this particular moment just kind of caught like sucked into just more mainstream pop acts at this moment and maybe rendered them slightly useless in a way. Sure. And you think about even some of the acts back then, some acts later, Skillwrecked, for example, was a musician in one of the bands on Warp Tour. Right. You think about Cobra Starship. Right. That Cobra came out of that Starship. Emo movement. Oh my God, Cobra exactly. Starship. 303. We're talking about like, you know, these pop punk bands, these emo bands that really went more towards pop mm. and they were part of the scene, but they kind of, were, it's tough to say they weren't, but they kind of were at the same time. They had one foot in, one foot out. Right. And I think a lot of bands in that era kind of saw that and that contributed to the change. I don't know if there's really one factor that led to the big change from the popularity of this music from, say, 2008 to 2010 or 11. Right. It's tough to, to pinpoint, but that was factor for sure. And of course, sometimes music just shifts and changes and pop music it could, could not be more fickle than, you know, it's the most fickle thing on earth. Like things can seem so hot for one second and then boom, it's just over. I mean, you mentioned disco. Sure. You mentioned disco earlier. I mean, that's disco is obviously like one of the primary examples of a burning hot and fast kind of subgenre and the way that pop can like eat things up and spit it out really fast. So like when does pop punk, you know, we mentioned it kind of like more or less, although there's elements of it that sort of filter through EDM and, you know, in the early 2010s, whatever. When do you yeah. see pop punk sort of re-emerging? Because we're having a big discussion now about it. Obviously, it's come back into fashion. I talked a little bit about some of the rappers that started to utilize some of this music maybe in the in the late 2010s. Like, how do you see this music start to kind of re-emerge or sort of retake center stage in pop in the 2010s? Well, I think what we're seeing now is probably more comparable even, I mean, still not on the popularity level, but more comparable to the early 2000s. Mm. I think what we saw in the 2010s, and this is one of my favorite, maybe my favorite era of pop punk, I would call it the 20 somethings pop punk mm -hmm. where all these bands the wonder years real friends mm. bands like that we're talking bands that would maybe sell you know 1500 tickets which is still very impressive right. to a show right. this music was losing popularity but it's kind of going back to the, the main fans the, the music was a little it, it kind of like went pop. back to a niche sort of thing exactly yeah. the vocalists weren't as high pitched mm. wasn't as polished a little more gruff mm. but the, the lyrics were a lot about they weren't about girls in high school they weren't about really politics mm. A lot of them were like stuff that 20-somethings were dealing with, mm. uh, paying rent, mm. moving out of mm. your hometown. That became mm. like a meme for a while in the uh, pop punk scene. Interesting. Trying to basically set your life up in your 20s, because a lot of these musicians, they were in their 20s. Right. They had grown up on Blink and Green Day. They wanted to do this themselves, sure. and they were very good at sure. it. But their focus turned to 20-something music. Mm. And I think people like myself, like many others that stuck with it, we related to that. Mm. We were in our 20s mm. or 30s or whatever it may be. 
And we were maybe more than ever truly relating to the music of that 2010s to 2015s type phase, mm. like the Man Overboards. I mentioned the Wonder Year State Champs. Mm. Just that group of musicians really took off then. So in a way, it was like a return to core values, but also as warped through like a different, yes. more mature perspective. And that was sort of like, it's sort of being released from the vice grip of mainstream pop, like allowed for those things to happen in some ways. It felt like it. It felt like it had gone back to being just a subgenre, a genre where maybe these musicians have a thousand, two thousand people. Mm -hmm. If they're really successful, show up at a, uh, you know, a medium club in Chicago or something like that. It was still big. Right. It was still popular, but it was nowhere near what it was in the early 2000s thousands and then you see like this and maybe i don't have the best perspective of it I always felt like between about 2017 and 2020 mm -hmm. there was probably the biggest maybe dip in popularity in the music a lot of bands were trying new things even in the 2000 the early 2010s you were seeing this big wave of a deep rock through pop punk bands you weren't seeing that as much in the later part of the decade i forget his name the bald guy with the glasses who's very famous for music reviews he did a review about blink 182's nine album in 2019 mm. And in that review, I remember him clearly saying, pop punk is hanging, hanging on by a thread. Mm. And I thought, yes, it probably is. Mm. And then the pandemic happened mm. in 2020. Mm. Machine Gun Kelly comes out with his music. Mm -hmm. Avril has his revival. Mm -hmm. All these solo musicians pick up the genre and things start to change again. I also think, again, as I mentioned earlier, it's worth noting, I think, like kind of the hip hop incorporation of this stuff that did happen in the late 2010s where it was like sure. again like little peep little uzi vert these artists triple x tentacion like there's all of these artists that grew up in the original 2000s pop punk boom and then we're sort of like combining elements of drill trap rap movements of that moment with sort of screaming emo vocals and like big pop punk choruses yeah. and guitar licks and all of this stuff and it was a really interesting moment where pop punk and hip-hop sort of fused together with me, little G, she don't keep Prior to this kind of like Machine Gun Kelly, Olivia Rodrigo revival that we've seen sure. in the pandemic, there was this moment where kind of hip hop became the main providence for pop punk revival in mainstream pop, it felt like to me. It was finally a moment, and I'm glad the scene was rewarded for being open to collapsing, being open to more innovation. It was finally a moment where solo artists, you didn't have to go to SoundCloud to do hip hop. Right. You could do pop punk on SoundCloud, right. it was accepted. Right. Artists were finally that and i think that really played a huge part of it because we're seeing you know post 2020 a lot of the big pop punk artists right. you you brought up a couple of them but the kenny hoopla's the jadens right. the games we play who's out on tour with mayday parade right now mm. they started picking up in the 2019s 2020s yeah. around the pandemic and they were solo artists yeah. and the scene became more accepting of it and that really helped out and machine gun kelly is a kind of a fascinating character in this uh, too because in machine gun kelly you have somebody that originally emerged as a quote-unquote rapper someone that was gesturing towards hip-hop sure. aesthetics who then vaulted or shifted into sort of being more of like a pop punk or rebranded re as a pop punk artist I can't stay
I find that transition interesting in thinking about sort of the wave of rap pop punk mashup and then sort of like having this white guy rapper be a kind of like a vessel for like the mainstreaming of pop punk again or this this white rapper who like maybe was trying on hip hop as a bit of a costume I don't really know there's a lot of interesting elements sure. to this kind of then being one of the vessels that like repopularizes pop punk in the mainstream pop world. It's incredibly interesting. And you brought up Little Peep and XS and Tassion. Yeah. They did such a great job kind of carrying that mantle, trying new things. Yeah. But Machine Gun Kelly, it was hip hop, then pop punk. There are very different styles that he, yes. was, he was doing. Yes. And in, I think in that moment, it did bring people back, but also it, because it was such an early 2000s style of pop mm. punk and it was doing well, it gave people room, other musicians room to give that a go. Right whether they're solo or they're a band. There's an interesting interview, Travis Barker talking to Joe Rogan. I think this was 2018 mm. when pop punk was kind of in that weird spot. Mm -hmm. And it kind of got poked on the rug. But Joe, you know, after Travis, hey, what are you doing? What products are you working on? Travis said, well, I'm working with a lot of rap artists. We're going to make pop punk music. Mm -hmm. And everybody was like, what? What is he talking about? Why would anybody do that? Well, that turned out to be some of the musicians we talked about. The Machine Gun Kellys, the Jadens, mm. that crowd that really blew up. And then I think with that, TikTok became right. big and a lot of musicians were creating pop punk music. Right. Nessa Barrett, Olivia Rodrigo yeah. did a little bit of it. Yeah. Pop punk music on TikTok yeah. during the pandemic. And that also helped out too. The TikTok thing is really interesting too, because obviously TikTok and just culture in general is in a massive wave of nostalgia, particularly for kind of Y2K aesthetics. So it's, you know, it's interesting to sort of think about this pop punk revival almost feeling like a sort of part of that y2k fetishizing that's going on in broader pop culture right now like this this idea that like you know a also that like old music becomes hits on tiktok generally speaking like you can you can you know fleetwood mac song can like become a top 10 hit all of a sudden yeah but like there is part sort of this overall sort of fetishization of that sort of y2k aesthetic and obviously pop punk was a huge part of that i'm curious like what you see as kind of like the big touchstones in the pop punk revival of the sort of 20 post 2020 era like what has that been like? What are the main songs and artists as you see them? And like, how is it similar or replicating what happened in the early 2000s? And how is it different in your mind? So we talked about Machine Gun Kelly, and I think that was a big part of it. There's a documentary on Hulu. There's a moment where Travis Barker says, you just brought back a style of music after you won this big award, I think at the BMAs. Mm. I think there's some truth to that. But I think there's also the fact that there was like this roster of early 2000s, 2010s musicians. I'm thinking about I mentioned Man Overboard, mm. uh, The Wonder Years, mm. Charlotte, Goldfinger, John Feldman. Mm. A lot of these like established voices mm. were doing production work for these up and coming musicians. Right. Uh, Four Years Strong, their band members do have a, have a place in Florida where they do work. So I think it was Machine Gun Kelly. Mm -hmm. It was some of these hip hop artists getting into pop punk. It was TikTok, mm. a lot of these young artists coming up mm. and trying it on TikTok. But then there was a lot of really established veterans, Travis Barker, of course, being a big one as well, mm -hmm. that were working with young talent and, and coaching them and helping them make their way through the music industry. And that really contributed to it. What do you think were like the big moments of this recent wave? I'm thinking about Olivia Rodrigo's Good For You being obviously feeling yeah. like it's a big moment in this. Are there other big important moments that sort of have characterized this most recent wave? And in terms of thinking about this music, in terms of thinking about the mainstreaming of pop punk again 
in the 2020s. How is it replicating what that music sounded like, what the original wave of the 2000s sounded like to you? And how is it different to you in your mind? So I think the big difference between now and in the early 2000s for both pop, punk, and emo, when I talk to younger bands now, they make this point is back then it it started in city. Mm -hmm. You had to own Chicago, Mm -hmm. own New York for emo, own Mm -hmm. New Jersey Mm -hmm. before you made it out of there and started going more mainstream. Now it's, you got to be big on social media. You do your own thing on TikTok. Mm -hmm. You grind Mm -hmm. by posting videos. Mm -hmm. You you win there, and then that will build your audience. I think that's a huge difference mm-hmm. between you know the early two thousands and then what we have now in terms of moments. I think you, you brought up a really good one with, with Olivia Rodrigo having her album do so well. We've talked about Machine Gun Kelly, artists like Trippy Red mm. switching over to pop punk. Mm-hmm. Avril Lavigne, I think, having such a good comeback album was valuable. Mm-hmm. You know, Blink One Eight Two makes their announcement they're coming back. Right. I think a recent important note was Yellow Card. I, I just had a chance to talk with their singer William Ryan Key. Yeah. And they're having an incredible reunion tour yeah. where they're selling out, you know, these small stadium environments. Mm-hmm. There's been festivals. When we were young festival that came out this past fall did very well. I And then I think there's things like Emo Night, yeah. you know, the, this touring DJ that plays music from this, this genre. There have been all these little moments over the past couple of years coupled with this online environment that allowed for that nostalgia to come back. Simple plan, I'm just a kid challenge that was big on TikTok for a couple of months little things like that i think have all come together in this pot that have allowed i've allowed pop punk to find its footing again do you think that the musical style of like an olivia rodrigo is different in notable ways from an avril paramore good charlotte you know simple plan like is there ways in which like obviously she's co-opting a lot of the aesthetic guises of pop punk but as an artist as a writer like how is is this music replicating that to you or is it sort of morphing it in meaningful or notable ways I think there's a couple a couple of her songs are definitely more pop punk right. than other songs. Mm-hmm. You have I think with her there's a combination of pop and then you'll have one that feels a little more like pop rock or pop punk. Yeah. I, I think with like early Avril and there's to an extent you see that too. With Paramore, Haley Williams, yeah. a lot of that music, it was all pop punk from beginning out to see. end. Uh-huh. And we're we're a little you see that a lot with a lot of bands that are up and coming mm-hmm. that or musicians that call themselves that that categorize as pop punk. Mm-hmm. They will experiment Different elements. Mm-hmm. One song maybe a pure pop punk mm-hmm. album and or pop punk song, and then another song will be very poppy. One right. might have hip hop. One will use a trap beat. Right. So you're seeing that experimentation, and part of it, I think is just trying to figure out what hits on Spotify. Yeah, right. You're seeing that experimentation throughout the course of a collection mm-hmm. of songs mm-hmm. they produce. When it's not just one pop punk sound like we used to hear. Perhaps that's a reflection of changing attitudes about sort of like sure. you know genre fealty and sort of like the sort of the way that all this shit was kind of separated out into credible and uncredible blah 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 like there was a lot of sort of policing around that stuff during the early 2000s whereas now I feel like most music consumers and most kids that are listening to music like don't really care about like what genre you are or like what scene you're a part of like it feels more like there's a fluidity there's less sort of policing of like what's cool what's not what's selling out mm-hmm. what isn't selling out it feels more like there's probably like a feeling that you can sort of traverse a lot of different styles without sort of sure. feeling like you're betraying like the the sort of bill of you know or the constitution of whatever one of these these subgenres or subcultures has going on yeah it's a spotify of music i mean it all kind of comes together in one big playlist yeah. and i think you're right the consumer is used to listening to a variety of types of music 
I think now, I mean, record companies, they would say, oh, if you're going to take that big experiment, we can't support right. that because we only have one album every three years. Yeah. So you got to make this thing good yeah. or at least make your hit good. Yeah. Nowadays, like, well, come out with that song. If it doesn't work, we got a new one coming in three days. Yeah. It can be different yeah. and more traditional for you. So yeah. I just changes in the environment I've really contributed yeah, to. Yeah, and I, and I think Olivia also kind of represents an interesting fulcrum point in pop music because and, and her utilization of pop punk feels like part of that to me, which is that like pop in a mainstream sense you know, entered this kind of slow, dour, muted, introspective, you know, sad girl kind of vibe in the kind of sure. post-Lord late 2010 sort of vibe of, you know, a lot of pop music. And I think Olivia kind of like had driver's license, which sort of like fit that idea. And then she had mm -hmm. Good For You, which was like a pop punk number. And she, so she sort of she sort of utilized pop punk to like make pop music that was loud and in your face again. And I think that that was like an interesting idea and a good use of what pop punk aesthetics are good for in a way of like sort of finding a vessel to like make pop more of something that like she could you could scream in someone's face after years of kind of not having that going on. And I, I don't know if that and that's one of the great benefits of where the music scene is right now. I'm not sure if that was there when bands like Tonight Alive right. or uh, We Are the In Crowd, Paramore. I don't know if those bands had, they should have been able to, but I don't know if the music scene let them have that right to be kind of like the oh, I'm the, the, the girl that's going to fight back. Right, right. They kind of had to do what the right. guys were doing. They could do it in their way. But we saw that with Rodrigo, and then there's other musicians that have followed her, the Nessa Bears sure. of the world, Lolo, mm -hmm. solo female musicians like that that have bite to them, yeah. that have almost this female empowerment yes. that should have been there. And it was there certainly in moments of, of past songs, but now that is like their main ethos, their main focus. And that is one of the many benefits of this new age of pop punk, that type of bite mm. that's being accepted mm. from women that, you know, of course, needs to be mm -hmm. there. That's telling their story. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's very much more accepted now, which is great. Where would you like to see all of this go next? I mean, you're you're a pop punk fanatic. This has been an area of interest for you for a long time. Like, where do you see this going? Where would you like to see it go? Like, what, what are your thoughts on the future of pop punk? I want to see it continue to stay and grow. Mm -hmm. I like the direction that it's taken mm -hmm. when it comes to the diversity. There's more bands with, you know, female singers, mm -hmm. women of color, people mm -hmm. of color. There's a lot more diversity in terms of the sexuality in the scene. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more acceptance in the scene. Mm -hmm. There's a better understanding of, yes, it's always been an open scene, mm. but in the past, the young men had too much power mm -hmm. when it came over their fans. We've seen a lot of them utilize that and get in trouble and do bad things. So it's good that that hopefully is now acknowledged. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of things that are, are better and I want to see that growth. I want to see solo musicians keep doing pop punk and get people, and I want to see if there's still a traditional pop punk band. I want to see them mm. continue to gain fans. Mm. I want to see this meshing of the old where you have a traditional band mm. that does pop punk or a solo musician who does hip hop and pop punk. And they all live in like this kind of <laughs> harmony type thing. And the music continues to to draw people. And because uh, I think there's just so much positivity in the scene when it comes providing a place for people mm. to enjoy and I, I want to see that stay alive I love that that's great so last question for you what's like a good contemporary pop punk song that maybe like listeners to this podcast have not heard something that you like maybe listeners to this podcast are into Olivia Rodrigo's version of pop punk sure what might you want to put them onto like what's a good song that you'd want to put them onto that they probably would like to you know what let's send this show out on the song kids by friend circle because this music was made for kids mm. but it grew up with people cool. 
And now you have some of these younger musicians taking up the mantle, and I think it's a great track from the new album. All right, so let's go out on kids. Ryan, you want to tell everybody where they can find you and, t- and just plug your playlist really quick? Sure. So I have a playlist. It's on Spotify. It's called Ryan Pierce Alt and Punk Playlist. It is uh, under the umbrella of Radar 45, a great group out of the UK. Mm-hmm. Also, I write for New Noise Magazine and Alternative Press. Amazing. All right, well, Ryan, thank you so, so much for doing the show. This was wonderful. My pleasure. Love talking about pop punk, <laughs> and thank you for the opportunity. It was an honor. Yes. My pleasure.